You're listening to Uprooted, the podcast from the Institute for Agriculture and Trade Policy. I'm Josh Wise. Today on the podcast, I'm joined by Doug Gurian Sherman, who is a plant pathologist currently consulting with strategic expansion and trainings. Doug is a longtime uh, advocate in the sustainable agriculture community, having worked for the Union of Concerned Scientists and the Center for Food Safety, among others. Doug recently consulted with IATP on the report that was released by the Climate, Land, Ambition, and Rights Alliance. Uh, Doug, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. So, Doug, let's let's start um, with the uh, Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Report. Um, it's a it's a you know wide ranging report that issued a lot of dire warnings, but uh, there was a significant focus on agriculture. And why don't um, we start with kind of giving an overview with what the IPCC report had to say on ag um, from a very high level. Sure, so I mean, I think it's important to put this in the context of um, previous uh, IPCC reports, which have mentioned agriculture, but it's kind of been, you know, a a lost issue to some extent um, compared to power generation and transportation and and other issues. So, I mean, one welcome, I think, aspect of this is there's somewhat more detail and focus, I think, than there has been in the past on the importance of agriculture, both in terms of as an emitter of, uh, you know, climate change emissions and also the need for adaptation and potential uh, mitigation actions. Um, so that's, I, I think, um, welcome. And, um, one, I guess one way to frame this is, is kind of um, how the IPCC um, conceives of the um, role of agriculture and its importance in several ways. One is it acknowledges, um, I think, which is important, um, agriculture and food, you know, as, as it puts it, food security um, in the context of sustainable development goals. Um, and acknowledges the importance of those, uh, which is, I think, uh, really a, a positive and an important thing to not um, uh, look at climate change in isolation from those um, those goals. So that's that's a positive. Um, and sometimes um, in recent years, um, although I haven't followed it closely, my understanding is the IPCC has. Uh, kind of made noises that um, were somewhat favorable to um, bioenergy and um, carbon capture, capture and storage, um, you know, kind of bioengineering and geoengineering approaches, um, which can be extremely harmful. So um, one thing the IPCC did is um, looked at several, I think four different scenarios about how we can get to 1.5 degrees C uh, warming or or potentially less, although 1.5 C will be a huge challenge in and of itself given um, decades of relative inaction by the global community. Um, If we so-called overshoot 1.5 in terms of the amount of carbon dioxide and other climate change gases that we put into the atmosphere in the next couple decades, uh, then in order to um, avoid the most dire consequences of climate change, um, we would need to then somehow actually draw down carbon dioxide from the atmosphere. And that really gets into some very serious, risky 
um, uh, scenarios of so-called bioenergy and um, and uh, carbon sequestration. Um, and again, these large-scale bioengineering, bioenergy, geoengineering processes um, that are probably, especially at larger scale, um, could actually threaten food security, food sovereignty, um, environmental you know, ecosystem functions, and so forth, because they require tremendous amounts of uh, land use and other changes to the to the environment. Right. You know, I think we're. I'm. I know I'm going to have to do a whole podcast on um, uh, Becks and 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 other geoengineering stuff at some point because it, it does seem like it keeps coming up. But I, you know, the, so the the Clara report, which which you helped us with uh, and came out last week, basically argues that that that, that is unnecessary, or, or there is a pathway to 1.5 degrees Celsius. That doesn't involve that, um, but it requires kind of a large-scale embrace of agroecology. Um, can you dig into that and how that, um, how agrological um, approaches um, could be utilized? Sure. Yeah. So um, one of those pathways, kind of that that the IPC laid out, it's I think it's called it P P one. Um, actually, I think. Um, meshes to a significant degree with the approach of the Clara report and um, importantly um, concluded that it would have um, I think by far the least trade-offs with things like food security you know harming the poor in particular in the global south which is um, disproportionately threatened by climate change and so forth um, and what that amounts to and what the Clara report found, um, so the Clara report focused on um, land use in, um, in the climate uh, picture mm -hmm. scenario. And, and land use mainly focuses on um, for, you know, forests, deforestation, other um, large environments that, um, that contain um, lots of carbon stored in them out, you know, and, pull, and can pull it out of the atmosphere. So um, forests in particular, but also grasslands and savannas like the Cerrado in, um, in um, South America. And what the report found was that um, we can do two things through agroecology agro and ecological approaches to land use with um, avoiding these incredibly risky and unproven uh, bio, bioenergy and carbon capture approaches. Um, and what they, what they amount to are, are essentially a couple things. One is um, restoring degraded uh, forests and, um, and, primary, and protecting primary forests, which have huge standing um, reserves of carbon and increase that carbon capture from the atmosphere through the growth of trees, which you know, are largely made of carbon as well as some other elements. Um, and, uh, and that, so that, that's, you know, improving forests, um, increasing forests to some extent, um, including secondary forests and diverse forests. And an important, um, part of the report in um, recognizing this is the importance of indigenous, um, and smallholder uh, traditional land rights, which are often not recognized by countries and internationally, you know, those traditional mm -hmm. in indigenous peoples. Um, have traditionally protected these forests for millennia and continue to do so and, and are considered 
and there's you know research that shows this. Um, probably the single most effective way to ensure the the continuing survival and thriving of these forests, but often their land rights are not well protected. They don't um, have traditional titles and so forth. So you know, only perhaps ten percent, if I recall correctly, of those land rights are protected in traditional ways. So um, you know, one of the really important aspects of the report is to recognize that and that the importance of the stewardship of those mm. uh, peoples and to, to reinforce it. And doing all of those things um, would, one, protect the uh, standing um, uh, uh, carbon in those forests, which is huge. Uh, my recollection is it's somewhere, you know, it's probably over a thousand gigatons, which is a tremendous amount, but, but in any case, it's a huge amount. Um, but it, and then it would also help draw down carbon from the atmosphere. And again, that's an important point, um, you know, in terms of remediating um, the, um, you know, and, and reducing the, the current uh, and, and, poten and future over the next few decades, um, global warming potential of increasing, you know, carbon dioxide and other uh, greenhouse gas emissions. So that's one big piece. And then the other is with, um, you know, using ecological farming methods, which have been shown to reduce both environmental harm and um, climate emissions, uh, again, in several ways. One is by increasing um, agroforestry, um, by um, meaning using up to about 10% of a agricultural landscape for um, planting trees or growing trees. And again, that um, has several positive effects in terms of soil quality, um, windbreaks, biodiversity, and drawing down, um, you know, more carbon. Um, but also the practices themselves um, tend to emit fewer greenhouse gases. And here we need to talk a little bit about the particular greenhouse gases that are most important in agriculture because they're not really carbon dioxide, they're methane, which has roughly 25 fold higher uh, global warming potential than carbon dioxide, and mm -hmm. nitrous oxide, um, which has roughly 300 fold higher uh, global warming potential than um, carbon dioxide. These are the, the major global warming gases that agriculture produces. And so, What's generally been found, although we need more uh, good data on it, is that agroecological processes tend to um, produce fewer of those. Um, one big part of this uh, that I was kind of especially involved in is the livestock sector, which mm -hmm. is, you know, the biggest producer of uh, climate change, especially through methane production in ruminants, you know, cattle in particular, but, you know, sheep and goats to a lesser extent. And so the, the, because of the inefficiencies of livestock production, um, and this is actually physics as much as, um, uh, as, much as biology, but when you um, process um, energy in the form of food through any process, but through animals, for example, cattle or pigs or chickens, um, some of that is just lost. I mean, that's basically thermodynamics. Mm -hmm. And so when we consume animals or animal products that have been an intermediary between us and direct consumption of crops, we inevitably lose a considerable amount of that. Um, 
and, and that's manifested in the higher higher use of crops to produce animal products, higher use of all the inputs like nitrogen fertilizers, which then produce um, uh, uh, nitrous oxide, or the production of methane, um, much greater than if we consume those crops themselves. You know, there's this argument that comes from the big industrial agriculture, industrial livestock companies, um, that lowers the intensity of their emissions by having um, doing mass production on industrial processes of livestock. Um, and then they contrast that to, um, you know, I guess, I guess maybe they're contrasting it to like an agroecological approach or a smallholder approach or grazing. Um, can you just talk about the, you know, that intensity argument and how it kind of um, varies across modes of production? Sure, yeah. I mean, of course, it's, it's complicated, but, um, uh, you know, uh, the, the recent report that Brain and IATP did, um, but also other peer-reviewed literature over the last, you know, year or two, um, has shown pretty clearly that while it is true that um, those uh, emissions are less per unit of, um, of uh, animal uh, product produced, um, so in the narrow sense, what they're saying is accurate. The projected increases in uh, animal product consumption in a business as usual kind of scenario that's you know widely accepted, um, which is driven in part by the um, subsidized low cost of these products, which is also leading to you know obesity epidemics and and other problems with uh, poor diet in many parts of the world. Um, those um, those products, um, the increase of those products greatly outweighs the kind of marginal, um, but not insignificant increases in, in efficiency, you know, so-called that, that these uh, producers talk about. So um, what, again, going back to the Claire report, uh, and, and this is, you know, based on um, analysis of the uh, peer-reviewed science literature, um, really the only way we can reduce emissions substantially in agriculture, which, um, you know, account for roughly a quarter of all climate emissions um, when you include, you know, land, land use like deforestation. Um, the only way we can really substantially reduce that is to substantially actually reduce the consumption of those livestock products. But then another piece of that is um, that's not really recognized, um, you know, in those evaluations by the industry is that um, climate emissions are still very high in those production systems, especially because they depend on huge amounts of grain production um, that then inefficiently go to feeding livestock. And the production of that grain uses high levels of nitrogen fertilizer, which produces very large amounts of nitrous oxide. And so um, what we advocated through what we call it, um, equal, it's been a, a name we didn't coin, um, it's been in the literature, ecological leftovers approach, um, would actually reduce substantially the amount of land needed to produce those you know, grains and so forth that are now going to feed livestock. So roughly, globally 40% of grain production actually goes to feed livestock rather than feeding humans directly, which is much more efficient. 
So if we did that and really followed through with that and based it on, you know, uh, recognized healthy diets, um, you know, the Harvard diet and some others, for example, and reduced our consumption of meat um, in areas where we overconsume, like in the U.S. on average, I mean, obviously not vegetarians and, and as much and uh, vegans, but you know, on, on average in places like the U.S. and Europe, we overconsume meat to our detriment. Um, if we follow those healthy diets and, um, and supported livestock based on two things, one is not or hardly feed livestock um, directly with products that we could, food products that we could consume directly. Instead, feed livestock like poultry and pigs on things that we don't consume, the, the leftovers of our food process. So um, grazing cattle on crop stubble, for example, that wouldn't otherwise be, you know, eaten by us or um, mm -hmm. feeding waste, you know, to um, hogs, for example, or other byproducts of the food process to feed them to hogs and, and poultry and raise them based on that, and then also raise a certain amount of cattle, um, dairy and or beef, on um, pasture and rangeland um, that could be used to produce that food, but otherwise would um, not be adequate to produce significant amounts of food like grains that we would, and vegetables we would consume directly. For example, in semi-arid areas or some of the drier areas is one example um, where it's not really very efficient to produce um, food directly, but where perennial pastures, um, you know, can support um, uh, cattle, for example. And so they wouldn't compete then directly with food production. And so the combination of those two things in the ecological leftovers process um, could greatly reduce, and, and basing it on healthy diets, could reduce the amount of um, you know, global emissions by mid-century by somewhere around seven uh, uh, gigatons uh, per, uh, uh, per year, which is substantial. So that really puts a lie to the business as usual, improving efficiency argument. I was going to jump in and say on the, the, the economic side, right, is that uh, farmers in general who are, who are growing feed crops are often doing so at a loss and, and somewhat reliant on crop insurance and other forms of subsidies. So the, there's actually an opportunity um, to, uh, for farmers to be moving into more value-added modes of production as well here, right? Absolutely. And, and that's, um, you know, again, that, that's a really important point. And I think the overall point, which you kind of allude to, is we really need to look at agriculture systems and food systems as part of the global economy and part of the global political economy, you know, the neoliberal economy, uh, which, you know, uh, fosters so-called, you know, unimpeded free trade. And what, what that has done is you, again, you know, also, uh, you know, correctly um, alluded to is, has led historically and continues to lead to overproduction. Um, there, there are a whole host of other kind of benefits to um, really trying to move hard in this agroecological direction. And I know a lot of your work has been around GMOs. You've done quite a bit of work on pollinators. Can you talk about sort of how um, by, uh, I guess, harnessing this power um, uh, to achieve the 1.5 degrees Celsius 
um, goals, we're creating uh, kind of this myriad of other benefits. Yeah, and and again, Josh, that's a really important point. And and uh, yeah, uh, you know, IATP has done great work on the trade and subsidies and farm bill issues. Um, so yeah, I would refer to, uh, also refer to that, you know, for for people um, to to better understand that these. And an important point around agroecology that, that um, you're kind of getting at here is that there are um, multiple benefits that reinforce each other um, or have synergies um, that go beyond climate change, but include climate change. And um, again, the IPCC kind of, you know, nods to that to some extent, but I think it's really important that we go beyond that. Um, and, and to put it in context, um, in addition to climate change, uh, global change scientists have recognized that um, there are several other major crises, catastrophes going on you know, globally. One is loss of biodiversity, and we are at um, rates of biodiversity that uh, loss that are comparable to what we're seeing during um, major global catastrophes like, you know, the... the um, transition between the, the um, Mesozoic and, and the current uh, tertiary um, epochs in geology. We're talking 60 million years ago when the dinosaurs, you know, went extinct. Mm -hmm. Or, or two, 200 and I think it was 15 million years ago, the Great Permian, it seems. These were events of global, huge global scale that were wiped out huge number amounts of our biodiversity. Um, and that biodiversity has practical and, you know, and cultural and aesthetic importance to us, practical in terms of helping us support everything we need from pure water and water conservation to pollinators to, um, you know, uh, fruitful ecosystems and so forth. Um, and uh, so agroecology, by working with, you know, as the, as the name of the uh, um, science suggests, um, working with the environment and with the ecological ecological principles actually works with all those systems and reinforces them by recycling nutrients. So instead of adding more and more synthetic um, nitrogen fertilizers, recycling the nitrogen that we're already using back to the soil, back through the crops and so forth, and trying to keep it out of the environment. So that cuts down on things like dead zones. You know, last year, Despite all of, you know, another aspect of this efficiency argument is that, you know, it's better for the environment. But, you know, if we look at what's going on with biodiversity loss, if we look at what's going on with the hundreds of dead zones around the world, coastal dead zones like in the Gulf of Mexico, last year it was the biggest ever. So despite these arguments that farmers are doing better, and that mostly comes from the Midwest, from runoff of nitrogen down the Mississippi into the Gulf of Mexico, a lot of it coming from Minnesota, Iowa, and so forth. Um, biggest, biggest ever last year. So that argument that our efficiencies are paying off just is not borne out. Um, mm -hmm. And um, by contrast, uh, it, this is just one example, um, more ecological measures like longer crop rotations, especially that include perennials, short-lived perennials like alfalfa, which you can keep in place for two to five years. Um, it produces deeper roots, natural nitrogen, and so forth. Um, those longer crop rotations improve soil quality um, 
and if they include pasture, again, even more so, cover crops, all of these things have been shown to reduce that nitrogen that can, contributes, one, to nitrous oxide, as I said before, that free nitrogen, some of it's converted to nitrous oxide, and two, you know, contributes to water pollution like dead zones and toxic algae growth and so forth. Um, so when we use um, ecological principles like longer crop rotations, cover crops in the winter to keep the soil covered, um, uh, uncultivated areas around our crops like uh, trees and so forth, all of those things reduce climate impacts by recycling nitrogen and so forth. But they also have benefits in terms of higher soil fertility. So they help us adapt to climate. So the more fertile the soil is through the use of these methods, you know, increasing organic matter in the soil, that water uh, holds more, uh, that soil holds more water per acre, which, um, and, and it flows into the soil better. So that reduces flooding substantially. Um, it also is good for droughts because that then can be released to the plants uh, effectively over, you know, a dry season. And so all of these things have had several demonstrated benefits. One is higher yields in years um, when there are droughts, um, you know, compared to conventional industrial agriculture, monoculture, um, higher yields when there are floods, um, comparable yields, sometimes higher yields in quote unquote normal years. And of course, we're gonna face more floods and droughts through climate change. So it has important climate adaptations. Um, 40 to 90% less nitrogen in the water um, compared to industrial agriculture. Um, you know, uh, it's good for pollinators because those longer crop rotations and higher uh, biodiversity provide natural enemies that um, reduce the need for insecticides and other pesticides that reduces weed, uh, weed herbicide, herbicides, you know, to control weeds and all of those things. It reduces those harmful chemicals which kill pollinators. Um, it provides habitat for pollinators. Um, so we, have, we see all these multiple benefits to the water, to the soil, uh, diversity in the environment, um, more biodiversity, and less greenhouse gases compared to industrial ag. So I'll give you, you know, as one example, um, Iowa State, and this is also in the published literature, there's a fair amount of literature, has actually looked on some of these, at some of these proposed improved industrial farming methods like no-till, um, which does have some soil benefits, like precision uh, fertilizer placement and so forth. And what it's found is that um, while those do have some benefits, they're minor. So better use of fertilizers uh, might improve or reduce nitrogen in the water by roughly 10%, according to a lot of these studies. Whereas, as I said, using cover crops, longer crop rotations, putting perennials into those rotations and so forth, uh, can reduce nitrogen in the water by, you know, depending on which practice, you know, 30 to 40% up to 80 or 90%, um, you know, when they're combined. And so even, you know, in terms of those climate implications from that nitrogen, some of which is termed a nitrous oxide or water pollution, uh, the differences between using these ecological approaches compared to uh, the so-called sustainable intensification approaches of industrial agriculture are just huge. And again, more resilient in terms of, you know, climate effects like drought and flooding 
um, higher, higher productivity. And it's been shown in a number of studies, especially at uh, um, Iowa State, long-term uh, field studies um, at the Marsden Farms, for example, that the profitability is, is high or higher than for, um, uh, for industrial you know, monoculture approaches. I, I want to I touch on that a, a little bit more as well, because the argument that you, you hear from the big industrial ag companies is, of course, we're feeding the world, right? And we have to do things our way in order to feed the world. And so what I'm hearing from you is that it's pretty clearly demonstrated that this can also be done through agroecological um, methods, right? Like, and, and I guess maybe just talk about a bit more about, you know, if, if we are going to need this huge agricultural scale up um, in developing countries, is that achievable using these methods? Yeah, absolutely. And I think actually I push back even a little bit more that um, it's it's really these industrial methods are not feeding the world now. I mean, mm -hmm. I mean, right now what you know, our corn and soybeans are mainly feeding is live industrial livestock production. So that's producing right. animal products that are, for the most part, not affordable to the global poor. And so, mm. you know, we still have, depending on, you know, the economic cycles, anywhere from, you know, 800 million to a billion people that are food insecure, don't have enough reliable food on a day-to-day -day basis. And more than that, when you're talking about, you know, those that are marginal in terms of the quality of their food, much more than that. Um, and those are mostly the global poor that are not being fed, despite the fact that in terms of calorie and proteins, uh, we produce more than enough now to feed everybody in the world and, um, and can easily produce, you know, again, if we scale back livestock production, more than enough to feed, you know, the nine or 10 billion people projected by the mid-century. Mid the problem again is poverty and these systems do not improve poverty. They push small farmers off their land through either land grabs or through the, again these artificially low prices that small farms can't compete with. They displace them through you know tenure problems you know that I discussed earlier in many countries um, and so in fact, the current system is exacerbating food insecurity. We know that food sovereignty in these small farmers, there's, it's actually, it's ironic because small farms, given you know, comparable resources, actually produce more per acre of food than large, really large farms do. Um, and that's because they produce diverse foods that are locally adapted, culturally appropriate, and also adapted, you know, often if the, you know, they don't have extremely high productivity, they're often more resilient to local conditions. And so, um, it, you know, it, it, it was so surprising to economists uh, that they called it the inverse relationship and, and really tried to disprove it for many decades. Amartya Sen won the Nobel Prize for Economics, you know, many years ago for his work, initial work that showed that actually these small farmers, you know, were often more productive counterintuitively than large farms. And, and that, you know, importantly, it was not the inavailability of food, even regionally, that caused large famines, but rather, again, our economic system that was disempowering and disenfranchising poor people. Um, and so, you know, again, agroecological processes have been shown under both in developed countries, as I was talking about earlier, to be as or more productive, um, and in uh, 
Jules Priddy and others have shown this in the Global South over and over again. Um, there's one system in particular that's often been talked about. It's just that such a uh, you know um, smart system called the push-pull system that illustrates this. It's been used in Kenya by thousands of farmers where uh, complementary use of different crops um, produce um, uh, repels major pests, major weeds, um, produces livestock fodder, and um, doubles or triples the productivity of grain crops, corn, millet, sorghum, and so forth that use this system compared to um, you know, monoculture systems that have been forced on you know, farmers mm -hmm. in that part of the world. So yeah, I, it's it's a real myth, and what we really need uh, that uh, that industrial agriculture you know feeds the world. What we need are people locally and regionally being able to feed themselves, and that again, land tenure, women's rights. You know, it's been shown over and over again um, that empowering women who often grow a lot of um, you know the foods that are directly consumed, um, you know, uh, education of women and so forth. All of these things contribute to food sovereignty, and those uh, contribute much more to food security. What are the mechanisms that you see would help accelerate the trend towards agroecology? Right, so I think there's a, a number of things. Um, I think probably foremost, it, it is a political or political economy approach because we have these very entrenched industrial systems, what uh, social scientists often call um, uh, you know, in a process of lock-in or path dependency, where the farmers are in debt, you know, for their equipment. They're heavily dependent on uh, purchased inputs like uh, patented seeds, you know, GMO seeds, seeds that are coated with pesticides, um, you know, pesticide fertilizer use, uh, major equipment, and so forth. So they have increasing debt, um, high land costs, high rent costs for land, and small margins, so they're kind of trapped, you know, to, to a significant extent mm -hmm. um, in this system. Um, and that includes things like peer pressure, um, you know, when farmers try something new, it includes lack of adequate extension resources for alternatives and adequate research. Um, some of my colleagues have published research that have shown that only a couple percent historically of our agriculture research has go gone into sustainable and agroecological research to make those systems more available, more efficient, more accessible, um, so that farmers can have more confidence in them and so forth, compared to the vast majority of research at our, especially our land-grant universities that have reinforced industrial agriculture. So all of those things lock in our uh, industrial path, not to mention that because um, they support these huge corporations, which then lobby for more of the same. Uh, that reinforces this lock-in process. So, for example, in agroecology, you're recycling nutrients. So you need, if you're using uh, chemical fertilizers, you're using much, much, much less of it, maybe 5% or 10% than mm -hmm. what you would otherwise, or none. Um, similar with pesticides um, or GMOs. You, you don't need those things. Or if, you know, if a farmer's not strictly organic, they use, again, a tiny fraction, a few percent, 5%, 10% of those pesticides that they would otherwise. And that, you know, works against the interest of these big companies like Monsanto or the trade companies like Cargill and ADM. 
the big, you know, fertile, fertilizer supply companies, the seed, you know, companies, which are often merged with the pesticide companies, those companies want to maintain this system of, um, you know, input dependence. And so what we need are, you know, regulations, um, insurance policies that support farmers. We need much more research and extension from the public sector that's not um, captured by industry to advance agroecological systems. We need non-patented seed systems that farmers can save seed, that breeders can, um, can, can work with um, and produce locally adapted crops. Uh, we need to develop markets um, and local, you know, marketing systems that, that um, go around the big integrators of, of meat that control the, the meat industries, um, you know, and so forth. So we, we do need policy, you know, um, you know, simply, you know, asking people to change diets while important is, is not going to be enough because we have these current policies that reinforce through research and policy and subsidies that industrial system. Well, Doug, thanks a lot for joining me on the podcast today. Yeah, thanks again for having me. Keep up all the great work. You've been listening to Uprooted, the podcast from the Institute for Agriculture and Trade Policy. For more on what you've heard, including to read the Clara Report, you can visit our website at www.iatp.org. This podcast is available for download on Stitcher, iTunes, and wherever else you get your podcasts. If you like what you've heard, please give us a positive rating. Thanks for listening.